we're going to direct our attention to these three questions today. Number one, why is there a controversy today on origins? Why is this place such a central role in, in our experience? Why is it that every time we turn on the television, or if we don't turn on the television, we pick up a magazine, they're all talking about something that happened billions of years ago, or hundreds of millions, or millions of years ago, that has nothing to do with the story in the Bible. We'll talk about that for a moment. Uh, then we'll cover what is the uh, cost to us of accepting evolution. Can I believe in evolution and also believe in God? And uh, number three, how do we respond to hard issues of origins? And there we'll get into the nitty-gritty of the science, but the first part will deal with some of the other issues. Why is there a controversy on origins? I think uh, the answer to that is, is varied depending upon where you're coming from, but I'm going to read you verse uh, 12 through 14 in Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 is one of two chapters, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, that deal specifically with Lucifer and the fall in heaven. Uh, this is directed to Lucifer. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, meaning I want to get in God's place. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. Someday you and I will have the privilege of finding out what that means, what north means in, in the kingdom of heaven. Right now we can only... Uh, we can only anthropomorphize it and talk about what north is to us. Then he says this in verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. I will be like the most high. Certainly it was not the character of God he sought. So what was it about God that he wanted? He wanted the ability to create beings who would then worship him. Now, I'm making this up. This is my theology, not the Bible or anybody else's. So I'm going to tell you a little story here. Lucifer, the light bearer, was the one in heaven who went to the newly created beings to tell them that God was the one to be worshipped. And so he would see them turn their initial attention away from him to God. And somehow, over time... This came to be for him a, something that he desired. And so he saw that if he could create beings, they would worship him. How do we know that? What was his greatest temptation to Jesus in the wilderness? Yeah, it was, I will give it all to you. You won't have to go to the cross. You won't have to, you won't have to stand for anything in this awful world that I've messed up. I will give it all to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. I will give it all up if you'll just worship me. That's what Satan wanted. Because worship, more than anything else, preeminently worship is about worshiping the one that made you, your creator. And, and Revelation 4.11 makes that very clear. There's also a, a corporate controversy, and that has to do with us as a church. And we can read about that over here in this very unpopular chapter in Revelation chapter 3. It's unpopular because it's those uh, 
It's those three fingers that are pointing back at us when we're pointing at someone else. It's right there in Revelation chapter 3. And what does it say? And incidentally, and this is no accident, I'm sure. I didn't write it, but it seems like it's no accident. In verse 14, it says, To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So here you see the only place in, in uh, Revelation where this is, this is emphasized is right here in the story about the Laodicean church. Is that a coincidence? I think not. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Today in the church, we are Laodiceans. We are unwilling to deal with the issues. We are afraid to confront controversy. And so we allow the issue to stay in the church rather than to deal with it. And I think you'll see what I'm talking about later on. Uh, there's also a personal controversy. First uh, Peter 5.8. This one shouldn't surprise us. Be sober, Peter says, be vigilant, because your enemy, your adversary, the one that is against you, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's who we're up against. If our peace is disturbed by controversy, it can be because of his manifestation. And prophetic. And there are two passages here I want to cover. Romans chapter 1. I never knew for many years that God had predicted in Romans 1 the situation we confront today. But here it is. And this is on the heels of Paul's comments about what? What's right before that in chapter 1? The just shall live by faith. And then he says in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So what do we see here? A statement of the complete transparency of God's creatorship. No one can go to God in judgment and say, I didn't know you made the earth. Why? Because even a little child can go out in the field and tell you who made the flower. Why is it that I, as a sophisticated scientist, can't say the same thing? Why do I have to try to make up some story that doesn't involve God? It's clearly seen by the things that are made so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, people, this is inside the church. Do you hear that? They knew God. Although they knew God, They did not glorify him as God. How do you glorify God as God? His worship, which is due to the creator. That's it. 
They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing, professing, who do we call professors? Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the likeness of man and flying things and four-footed beasts and creeping things. What is that? That's evolution right there. They're trading the creator for a process of change that involves the formation of man from non-living things. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, those who exchanged the truth of God, his creatorship, for a lie, evolution, and worshiped and served the creature, the process of evolution, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what it says. Uh, the second text I'd like to share with you is Roman, is 2 Peter chapter 3. And one of the arguments that's made against God's creatorship is, oh, that's in the Old Testament. That's in the Old Testament. We live by the New Testament. You ever heard that argument? What does it say in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2? I write you this second book, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. That's what? Old Testament. And the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. New Testament. There they are, both of them there. You're supposed to know them both. And then he says, knowing this first, that in the last days there will come scoffers. Last days. When did the last days begin? 1798. Yeah, 1798. In the last days there will come scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, as far back into history as I look, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation till now. Where is the promise of his coming? Because the evolutionary process occurs over billions of years. When were those words first put into writing? 1796. The book was published by James Hutton, in which he enunciated those very things. He says, when I look into the history of the earth, I see no prospect of a beginning and no, no vestige of a beginning and no prospect of an end. That's saying the same words that are right there in 2 Peter as a prophecy. For this they willfully are ignorant of. There we have it again. Willful ignorance means they know. These are people who know the truth. 
For this they willfully are ignorant of, that the heavens were of old by the word of God, and the earth standing in the water and out of the water. What's that talking about? Creation. Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. What's that? Flood. Creation and flood. They're willfully ignorant. Do we have people today that are willfully ignorant? We're not talking the ignorance. We're talking willful ignorance. Do we have people today that say there was no original creation and there was no global flood that destroyed the world? Absolutely. That's a prophecy that's fulfilled. Does that give me courage? Yes. Absolutely. That's why we have a controversy on origins today. What is the cost of accepting evolution? Can I believe in evolution and also believe in God? <laughs> you already know the answer. I can skip this, right? No, let's take a look. <laughs> well, I, I think there are good biblical grounds. There is a good answer to this. Um, we already covered the first one there. Matthew 4, 8 to 10 is the story of Jesus and his temptation and how Satan wished to worship him because Satan, I mean, Satan wished him to worship Satan because Satan wanted to be the creator. And then uh, uh, we go to Revelation 4, 10 and 11. And uh, this is a marvelous, I hope, I hope you all were there to hear the sermon last night. The message last night was, was really beautiful. Uh, 4, 10, and 11, the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before his throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. Why is he worthy to receive worship? Because he's the creator God. And by your will, they exist and were created. So if the basis of worship is God's creatorship, what happens if we discount God's creatorship? What reason do we have to go to church? Well, remember, God has put the seeds of worship in every one of us. And if we do not acknowledge him as creator, we end up acknowledging something else. And those people who choose to believe that they came about by evolution, worship evolution. That's the process by which they came into existence. Not creation, but evolution. So they worship the process of evolution. We have no basis for going to church in the Seventh-day Adventist church, the Roman Catholic church, Episcopal Church, Baptist Church, or any other church, if we do not acknowledge God as our creator. Now, do millions of people do that? Yes. But can they justify that in scripture? No, they can't. It's worse than that. It's much worse than that. Because not only do we lose the basis of worship, we lose the hope of our salvation. Romans chapter 5 spills it out. 
By the way, read this passage through, read this whole chapter through when you have a chance. Count how many times in this chapter Paul goes over the same sentiments, each time modifying it a little. I'll just start here with 17. For if by one man's offense, that is Adam, death reigned through one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all, resulting in justification to life. And on and on. He's saying that because Adam was made perfect, and because Adam chose to sin and to turn away from God, and as a result of what Adam did, we all have inherited sin. Not one of us, not one in this room, had a choice about whether you were going to be a sinner or not. Right? Any of you have that choice? Not one of you had that choice. So it's right for God to send one person, Jesus Christ, to die for all of us, to make atonement for all of our sins, and to give us righteousness and justification. That formula only works if there was a pure, holy Adam in a pure, holy world to begin with. If you take away this garden and the perfect man and the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, if you take that out of the picture, there's no basis for hope. There's no basis for anything. Because why did Jesus die if, if Adam was just a certain one of these anthropoid hominids, if he was just a hominid that evolved over long periods of time, even if God helped him along and made the, made the uh, process work, he survived on the basis of the destruction and death of his ancestors and his relatives and everybody else. The whole story of evolution is one of death. The successful person evolutionarily is the one that leaves the most offspring, the one who has the most copies of his genes left behind. That's the story evolution tells us about meaning, meaning in life. You want that kind of life, meaning in life? Is that what you want? That's the story that evolution tells us. Death and destruction are a part of it. So what does that tell us about God? If God chose evolution as the means of bringing man into existence, then who's responsible for sin? Don't even answer the question. Just think about it. It makes the one who chose that process responsible for the consequences. And God is only fixing his own problem through Jesus, and the whole gospel goes away. There is no way around that. There is no way around that. One more verse, Isaiah 43, 1. Because it's one that's so beautiful, I have trouble passing it by. You should know that one by heart. And now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and formed thee, O Israel, fear not. I have created you. I have formed you. Fear not. 
for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. He's saying that to me, and he's saying it to you. You are his by redemption because you were his by creation. Those two are in one verse. Without creation, there is no hope of redemption. The whole story of the cross becomes meaningless rhetoric. That's pretty bad, but it gets worse. Exodus 31, 12 to 18. By the way, uh, some people might not be familiar. Uh, where do you turn in the Bible to t learn about the Sabbath? Exodus 20. But Exodus 31 has an even more powerful statement of the Sabbath. I'll just read the last part here, verse 16. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Pretty clear. But that's not all. The next verse. When he had made an end of speaking, this is God speaking. When he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So God wrote with his finger in stone. Any of you with teenage kids, you tell your son or daughter that's written in stone, that means you're not going to change it, right? They, they go and find something else to bother you about then. But uh, when something's written in stone, it's not going to change. And God said he wrote it with his own finger in stone that he made the earth in six 24-hour days. He didn't say 24-hour, but six days. If that's not true, and he wrote it with his finger in stone, then what else isn't true in the Old Testament? What else that God said isn't true? Or maybe Moses made up the story, in which case, what hope do we have that anything else Moses made up, uh, wrote is true? So our sense of the integrity of God is shattered if what he wrote in stone with his own finger is not true. Is that right? I like Isaiah 29. My wife is a potter, so I relate to this imagery pretty well. Isaiah 29. This whole chapter is very interesting. Read it sometime when you have, you have time. But I'm going to pick up uh, verse 15, 16. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Shall the thing made say of him who made it, he didn't make me. 
Can you imagine anything more absurd than a potter pulls up a beautiful, perfect pot and the pot turns around and says, you didn't make me. Can you imagine how absurd it must be to God when we turn to him and say, you didn't make me? How that must be a blight to him. Where, does, where do we get the honor from that? So, here's what we've lost. We've lost our basis for worship. We've lost our sense of redemption. And we've lost our belief in the integrity of God. That's all. You know, you can have everything else and still believe in evolution. But if you want to believe in creation, you have to accept the account of the creator. There's only one position we can take that preserves our faith intact. To believe in a literal fiat creation of the surface of the earth and the life forms on it. That it happened in seven days of about 24 hours, a few thousand years ago, that the world was made perfect with a perfect Adam and Eve. It was followed by the fall and later a catastrophic global flood that purified and reformed the surface of the earth. Those are the doctrines. Those are the things. And where did I get that? Out of Genesis. That's right there in Genesis. That's the basis of our belief in creation. It doesn't come from science. We don't go to the scientists and said, say, where did we come from? What kind of answer are you going to get? Yeah, something else. You have to go to the Bible to learn about the prehistory of the earth. Because this is, this is cliche, but I'm going to say it anyway. None of you were there to see it happen. None of the scientists were there to see it happen. And the God of creation who gave us this account, what are we going to tell him in judgment when he asks us why we denied the story of Genesis? What are we going to say to him? Well, you know, it was radiometric dating. It kind of confused me, and I thought you must have meant something else by what you said. And God will pull back the curtain and show us, perhaps, show us why we didn't understand it correctly. And then he will allow us to reap what we have sown. Because how can you tell God, I didn't believe what you said? Is that what you want to tell God in the judgment? Well, I distrusted you. I thought you were wrong. I thought maybe you didn't know what you'd done. That account right there, point by point, is very carefully thought out. I want you to keep that in mind a little bit later when we come to another slide. This is the message our church has been called into existence to proclaim. This is the message this church was called into existence to proclaim. How do I have a basis for saying that? Were you there last night? Did you hear about Revelation chapter 10? And what does cha chapter 10 tell us? It tells us there's going to be a great disappointment at the end of the 2300 days 
which ended in mid-October 1844. Is that right? Did I get that right? That's one thing it tells you. And that at that time, the beginning of judgment took place in heaven. Now that's something I can't see, so I have to take it on the basis of faith. But there's something else that most people miss when they read that passage in Revelation chapter 10. So let's turn back there and read that. And this is in verses 5 and 6. This is taken right out of Daniel, by the way. It's, it's verbatim from Daniel. In this little book that's open, that's the book of Daniel. And how do I know that? Because this angel, the same exact words are used here in Revelation that are used in Daniel in this verse. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. That's right out of Daniel. That there shall be time no longer. But what did I skip over in the middle of that verse? Who created the heaven and the things that are in it and the earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it that there should be time no longer. The time no longer part we get. The judgment began in 1844. But the middle part of the verse, what's that about? It's about creation. Well, what happened has to do with creation in, in mid-October 1844? Well, a book was published by a London book publisher by the name of Robert Chambers. It was published anonymously. He didn't want people to know that he had these thoughts. But this book espouses an entirely godless story of creation of everything from the universe to man. And it was probably the most widely read book of the 19th century. The most widely read book of the 19th century. It was read by Queen Elizabeth, Queen Victoria. It was read by Abraham Lincoln. It was widely disseminated. And one modern scholar by the name of Robert Secord wrote a book in the year 2000 about Robert Chambers and this book. And he says... The most important thing that happened in the uh, 19th century was not Darwin's origin of species. It was Robert Chambers' book called Vestiges of Creation in the History of the Earth, published when? Mid-October 1844. The very time when this church was called into existence. And then we turn over to chapter... 14, I think it is. Is that okay if I say that? You should know this chapter. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to everlasting gospel. What is gospel? Good news. God didn't give us bad news to share with the world. He gave us good news, everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Those words are found in this verse and in the last verse of chapter 10. Check it out. So this is the message that caused the disappointment in 1844. This is the, this is the reason Jesus didn't come back because this message hadn't been proclaimed yet. And what's the message? Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. That has to do with something that happened in heaven. 
and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. That has to do with God's creatorship, and that's something that happened on earth in mid-October 1844. So there are two parts to this message. God is the creator, and he's coming back soon. Is any of that bad news? Absolutely not. That is all good news. Historically, and this is very interesting, we've had an impact on what people believe about creation. Seventh-day Adventists have had an impact. Watch this. A special seminar, seminar on creationism at the annual meeting of the Geological Society of America it's in 2004. Two separate speakers named and figured this person as individual responsible more than any other for the modern creationist movement. Whose picture is going to be up there? George McCready Price? Ellen White. Two separate speakers, independently, I assume, had a picture of Ellen White on the screen. They didn't say anything bad about her. They just commented that she had the most profound impact of anybody on the development of the ideas that have led to the modern creationist movement. Of course, the Geological Society of America is out to, to squelch that movement. They want to get rid of it. But uh, that's, that's interesting. Somebody is doing their homework. Somebody's doing their job. And uh, Ellen White uh, certainly is the impetus for this church to promote both the second coming through the beginning of judgment and God as creator. And that brings us to part three. How can we respond to the hard issues of origins? That's a tough one. How do we deal with things we don't understand? There are serious problems for us as creationists, things that we have no clue how to handle, how to explain. Radiometric dating is probably the most important one, the most challenging, the most difficult for us to deal with. Directly, there hasn't been any particular insight over the last 50 years that has contributed to our understanding of it. Radiometric dating is a problem. I'm telling every one of you that so you'll know. If somebody comes up to you and tells you that what are you going to do about radiometric dating, they'll probably say, what are you going to do about carbon-14 dating? Because that's what most common lay people say. But really, radiometric dating is a bigger problem that encompasses radiocarbon dating as well. So, so somebody comes up to you and tells you that, what are you going to say? How are you going to deal with it? Where are you going to steer them? What light can you give them? That's what I'm challenging you with. There are other dating methods as well that seem to suggest that the Earth is older or life on the Earth is older than a few thousand years. Then there's the problem of the fossil record. We have all these hominid fossils, for example. What do we do with them? Where do they fit in? What's the story of that? And the orderly nature of the fossil record. How is it that we can find the same creatures at the same position in these layers of rock anywhere we look around the world? How can you explain? Can you explain that to me? I wish you could. Um, I, I would love to have an explanation for it. But uh, right now, I haven't heard one uh, that works very well. I think part of it is none of us knows what the world was like before the flood. 
We can pretend we do. We can play games with it. But in fact, we don't know. All right? Are you very discouraged now? I hope you are. <laughs> because there's this list. This is the courage list. <laughs> That's the discourage list. This is the courage list. These are the things for which evolutionists and people that believe the standard model, the, the long ages model, uh, have no answers for. Origin of life. Where did life come from? After almost, uh, after 80 years of study by some of the most prominent scientists in the world, we are no closer to having any insight as to how life could have originated on this planet than we were when we started. 80 years of scientific research, billions of dollars of your money supporting the research. And what do scientists tell us? Well, maybe it happened somewhere else. Well, why would they choose somewhere else? Why would they say, oh, it came from out in the universe somewhere, or maybe it's on Mars? Well, they say Mars because they want to go there and they think that'll help. But somewhere else in the universe, why would anyone suggest life came from outside this planet? Because they can't figure out any way it could have happened here. Is that clear? Do you see that? That's a problem. And when somebody comes to me and they say, what are you going to do about radioactive dating? I say, you got me there. I don't, I don't have a clue. But I probably will do the same thing you do with origin of life. And that's the end of the conversation. So rather than try to throw out something that will give them a chance to argue with me, I just give them something that's unarguable, and that's origin of life. However, there are other things. The fossil record. Remember, we talked about the fossil record as a problem. Now we're going to talk about it as a, a challenge for, for evolutionists. The sudden appearances of life forms at the base of the Cambrian. Virtually every major group of organisms that we know of today, including the group we belong to, the chordates, is present in the lowest part of the Cambrian, the very first layer above the Precambrian, which has no fossils. So you have no fossils, then you have a layer of rock here that has fossils. In that layer of rock, over a, a period of a very, very reasonably short time, we have representatives of every major phylum of animal. Every one. That's sudden. That means that all the diversity, all the the major body plans had to all come into existence all at once with no, no precursors. And then there's the problem of general absence of intermediate forms. If you look at fossils and if you spend your lifetime out working on the fossil outcrops as some paleontologists do, you will find out that you can't show me a sequence of animals in the fossil record where one form changes into another. Instead, you see one form and it stays there during the entire its entire existence, then it disappears and something else occurs and goes on up. I'll give you one example of this, a man by the name of Donald Prothero, who probably had a religious upbringing, as many of these people do, uh, but he's a, he's a rabid anti-creationist. And I guess that's why La Sierra brought them to their campus several times to speak to the students there. I don't know why anybody would invite him to come to their campus uh, but he's been to La Sierra several times. 
he retired recently. He was at Oxnard, University, Oxnard College down in Southern California. He spent his entire career studying lineages of animals through the fossil record. He studied 160 different mammal fossils from their first appearance in the fossil record to their loss from the fossil record. Of 160 lineages, there was only one that showed any change from the top to the bottom, and that was a slight change in size. It's called stasis. It means they don't change. And it's the basis of Gould and Eldridge's model of punctuated equilibrium. What punctuated equilibrium says, it says an organism appears and then it stays the same until something happens and the layer changes and then it's gone and something else is there. That's just a description. Punctuated equilibrium isn't a theory. It's a description of what you see. And what you see is there's no change. And evolution is about what? Change. So where is the evolution? Where is the evidence for evolution? Now, I'm not saying there aren't some problems. I'm just telling you in general the case is very much in favor of creation. Then uh, Dr. Leonard Brand and I have been working for the last 10 or 12 years on this problem of sedimentology and catastrophism. Uh, we've been looking at layers of rock in, in mostly in Utah and in, in that area in, in the southern states where you can see the rocks. There's not so many, there's not enough rainfall to have plants growing there so you can actually see the outcrops. We've been going through those outcrops centimeter by centimeter by centimeter through thousands of meters of sediment looking for evidence of time. We said if there's time there we should be able to see it. And so far we're not finding time. What we're finding is that one layer of rock with all its internal structures still there when the next layer is deposited on top. And that layer is there when the next layer is deposited on top. There's never any uh, stirring up of the, of the layers by organisms or any indication that there was a vast period of time uh, that's required by, by millions of years. So we see a general lack of evidence of time in the geologic record. That's, that counters the argument of of radiometric dating, and it suggests that maybe radiometric dating means something else besides time. We don't know what it is. I don't have any answers for you. I don't have any great wisdom on that, uh, but, it, but we do know that we don't see other things that look like they indicate a long period of time. And I, I could uh, carry on a whole lecture on that. And then we come down to the last of molecular biology. Whoa. Molecular biology, what is that about? Why is that on this list and not on the other? Well, because when I went off to get a PhD in molecular biology, I thought it would give me the answers to the issues of creation and evolution. What I found out when I was done and my PhD in hand was that I'd wasted my time. It was all about creation. It had nothing to do with evolution. And when the textbooks mentioned evolution, it was a made-up story. The data wasn't about evolution. The data were all about uh, this marvelous unfolding of what's happening inside the cells. The evolution was all pasted on the top. And finally, the textbook we were using, finally they eliminated the whole chapter of evolution altogether because it was such nonsense. Molecular biology certainly in the camp of creation, as we'll see. So what we have is something like this. We have some things over here on this side 
that we don't have good answers for, and there's a bunch of stuff over there that evolutionists don't have any answers for. And uh, that's probably a little generous, but I'm going to leave it that way. It's not what we might expect. Maybe we expect this, right? Or, or maybe some people would like to have it this way, but in fact, it's this way. So what we have here is, isn't that so much like God? Isn't that amazingly so much like God? He doesn't cram truth down your throat. He leaves it open for you to decide whether you want to believe him or not. God is a good God. He's good beyond our beliefs. And when we think maybe if we found a fossil man or maybe if we found the ark or we found some silver bullet somewhere, then we could go out and slay all the evolutionists. We could kill them all and be done with it. That's the way we would do it. And I think that's why God hasn't given us some of the things that we might want. Because he can't trust us to handle that kind of data. So instead, he leaves us with this. But this is good for us. Because if we have two sides of an equation that are the same, I don't know if there's any math gen geniuses here or not, but uh, I think I can figure that one out. If A equals B, then, then they cancel out. And uh, for those who know the science, those of you who are acquainted with the things that I just presented up here, those who know the data will understand that what you decide to believe about origins is always going to be based upon something besides the data. Is that clear? Does that, does that make sense? That's the way it is. And so what is it that decides what we believe about origins? Is it the science? No, it can't be the science. The science is ambivalent. The science is, is at least metrified. It's, it's something that you can look at and balance, and you say, okay, well, that kind of takes away the mandate for me to believe one thing or the other, doesn't it? And leaves me with freedom to choose. Freedom to choose. Isn't that beautiful? We can choose to disbelieve God or we can choose to believe God. And both of them have important consequences. So then why do we hear people in our own midst who reject the, the, the message of creation? They may reject it on the basis of a variety of uh, grounds, but often it's because of their misunderstanding of the science and theology. They don't have a clear picture of God they don't have a clear picture of the science, and they don't see what I just showed you on the slide. I, I can present this to a secular audience, and I have many times. I've never had anybody challenge what I said. So you can challenge it if you want, but I, I have had a lot of opportunities to be challenged on this presentation. Now, I don't tell them this, please. But, but I show them the balances, and I go through that whole series of arguments. And, and nobody ever stands up and says, oh, you're, that's foolish, you're wrong. So I'm assuming that there's some validity to what I just presented. And therefore, they must under, misunderstand something, either about the science or the theology. Um, subsequently, they may reject their Adventist faith entirely. That would be sad, but it'd be consistent with their rejecting the creator, the creator. 
the creation argument. That would be consistent. All too often, they seem to lack the courage to follow where their conviction leads. Perhaps they were raised in the Adventist church as some people have confessed to me that they are, they are social Adventists. They like being around the Adventist people. They feel comfort, comfortable there. They get a warm, fuzzy feeling. They're the fifth generation Adventists. They don't want to leave what they have, have uh, been raised in. Or perhaps they're employed in the church and they're afraid they'd lose their jobs if their true beliefs were known or, or something else. People, if, if, this ad, if the Adventist church rejected belief in God as a creator in that list that I gave you there right out of Genesis, I'd be the first one out the door. I would not just stew along with the rest of you. <laughs> I hope you join me. I hope this never happens in this church. But I'm telling you, I became an Adventist. When I became a Seventh-day Adventist, it was because it was consistent with what the Bible taught. And that's the reason I'm here today. And if this church were to leave that behind, I, they'd leave me behind also. Because I'm going to stay where I see the light. Here are some of the arguments that I've heard. And these are real ones. These are actual quotes. They may rationalize something like this. The time and how of creation is not essential to be a Christian, but the belief in Christ and his resurrection is paramount, and that's all that's needed. True or false? False. Or the Genesis text is poetry, not meant to be read historically. You ever heard that? Or the Genesis text is prose, meant to be read as accurate historical record but it's contradictory and incoherent, and the author was mistaken. I, I'm, I'm assuming that some of you have seen James Barr's quotation, what he says about people that, that, uh, that disavow, this, that, that accept this one. He says, I know of no professor at any world-class university who does not believe that the author of Genesis intended the account to be taken as, as it's written. That's this way. He himself doesn't believe it's true. He doesn't believe it's historical because of the second one of those reasons. He, he doesn't see it as true. But he says the author intended it to be read as history. And this is uh, Regis Professor of Hebrew. He died recently. Uh, out in California, but he was at Oxford University. So this is no mean scholar. So I, I, I tend to go with him. <laughs> he and I are on the same side on that. Or here's another one. There are two accounts of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, which do we believe? Which is the true one? So these kinds of arguments people use to excuse their disavowal of creation without realizing they're leaving behind everything else. Unfortunately, they often become evangelists for their newfound faith. If they're teachers for our youth, that can be catastrophic. People, that can be catastrophic. To confront these issues, we have to be prepared. As laity, we have to do everything we can to resist the advance of evolution and promote the truth about our creator God. The church, unfortunately, but it's the way it is, 
will not be changed from the top. Have you noticed that? We can have the best leadership you want to choose, and they aren't going to change the church. The church has to be changed from within, and that's you and I. That's us. We're the ones that have to take responsibility for not allowing things to go on that shouldn't go on. We have to be vigilant in choosing who will educate our children in science and theology in particular. That means you go and visit your teachers, you talk to them, and you ask them those questions on that list. Because if you ask them if they believe in creation or they believe in Ellen White, the answer is going to be yes. They believe she was a woman. They believe that the creation account is in the Bible. You have to pin them down. You have to ask them questions that they have to lie to avoid answering. You have to pin them down. I remember somebody told me a story about theologians that were being examined for uh, positions in the church, and they were practicing how to answer their constituents without giving their position away. Now, that's obviously, that's not everybody. I'm just saying that was a story that was recounted to me. We must carefully screen pastors of our churches. If you have a new pastor coming, if he doesn't believe the creation account, what is he going to be able to do for you? How is he going to convey the gospel if he doesn't have it himself? Screen your pastors. Find out what they believe. If you have a pastor now, go and talk to him. Sit down. Ask him those questions. Do you believe this and this and this and this and this? You may feel silly doing it, but if we don't do something, we're doing nothing. If we do nothing, we're responsible for the problem. We have to raise our voices to protect our children from those who would promote an evolutionary viewpoint anywhere in our midst. And we have to pray that God will vindicate his name. It's all on him, after all. We are vessels we are tools willing to be used by God. We are not God. And the change will have to come through him, through us. All right. Remember this. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. God says you will have to use faith when you decide what you're going to believe about the origin of the world. You hear that in this text? This is from chapter 11, the faith chapter. And the very first beginning of the chapter, he says, you're going to have to use faith. You're going to have to use faith when it comes to believing where you came from. Luke 18, 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Is this, a, is this going to be a problem? Is there going to be a short supply of faith when Jesus comes back? I, I think it's unquestionable that faith is going to be a short commodity when Jesus comes back. But you better have your lamp full. You better have your oil bottle full. And you better be practicing. And I'm saying this to myself. We had better be practicing faith now on a daily basis so that when Jesus comes back, we've got enough and despair. I don't know how else you're going to do it. It's important and helpful for us, even as non-scientists, to know what science can tell us. Okay? We said science can't give you the answer, 
But what does science tell us about the world around us? And science can affirm and strengthen our faith, even though it is not the root of our faith. What is the root of our faith? It's grounded in the word of God. Is that right? It's grounded in the word of God, but science can also affirm that. So I'm going to show you uh, just a little bit about molecular biology and what it tells us about where we came from. And uh, I hope you will enjoy this. This is a, a presentation that I've given, as I said, at many campuses, secular campuses. And uh, the logic has never been challenged. And it's not because it's coming from me, people. You know that. That's a trilobite. This is a, a fake ops rain of fake ops from Rockansas that I bought from a trilobite dealer in Spain. He's an Adventist physician who wasn't practicing medicine anymore. He was selling fossils. And I went over there to go to Morocco and collect some. And he, he sold me some out of his collection because Morocco was very dangerous to be in that time. And I bought this one. I happen to like trilobites. I don't know why. I just, just think they're really special. This is the, this is the logic we're going to follow here. Here's a trilobite here. Trilobites show up at the bottom of the Cambrian. This is the line. This dotted line going across here separates no data from data. There are no metazoan fossils down here. Above this line we find, as I said earlier, we find representatives of all the major groups of organisms right just above that line. So what we're going to do is a little experiment here. We don't have any trilobites today. They're extinct. So we can't know how complex their molecular biology is by, by direct observation. However, if evolution is true, or if it's not true, either one, if it's true, then evolution tells us that if this organism has something a certain way at the molecular level, and this one has it the same way, then the common ancestor of those two must have had that molecular biology complexity. You follow that? Anything else would, would, uh, would falsify modern molecular systematics. Modern molecular systematics assumes that if you have a complex protein in this organism and the same complex proteins in this organism, then the common ancestor of those two must have had that. And therefore, the trilobite, the first organism we find in the fossil record, must have had that molecular biological complexity. Is that clear? Okay. So we're going to look at what some of those complexities are. This is, uh, <laughs> this is enough to stop the show right now. This is a, this is a motor. It's in the membrane of, of the mitochondrion. It's what makes all the energy that keeps you alive. The ATP is produced by this. And it turns around. It spins around like a motor, just like a motor. It uses hydrogen ions as fuel. The hydrogen ions come in, and they have to get on this this uh, uh, armature here, and they travel around to the other side, and then they can get off on the inside. So to get from outside to inside, they have to go around the merry-go-round, and they hop off over here. And when the merry-go-round goes round, it turns this shaft, and this shaft, and this part up here is held in place, so when the shaft turns, it perturbs those molecules up there, and we'll see what happens in a minute. This, this next experiment is one of the most elegant 
beautiful experiments I ever saw in science. This is a glass slide. This is that tiny part that was on the inside, this part right here with the shaft. And scientists have attached a, the longest protein in the body to the top of that. So this is an actin molecule. It's very long. It's the longest protein in the body. You can actually see it in a light microscope. And then they have coated that with a dye, fluorescein dye, that glows when it's exposed to ultraviolet light. So we're now going to see this motor in operation. And here it is. Isn't that amazing? It is a motor. It's in every sense. It's a motor. Well, what I should say is a motor is this, because this came first. Uh, what, what I'm going to show you now is a model of it, of how it works. And you'll see the hydrogen ions on the outside. Then they will jump on over on this side. You'll see them go around. As they go around, they hop off over here and go on the inside of the cell. And as that happens, the shaft turns. And as the shaft turns, ATP is created. You see it? Here's the hydrogen ions. Here's the shaft turning. As it, as it turns, it jams an ADP and inorganic phosphate and makes ATP. There it is. That, uh, that little motor is present in every living organism. It's present in every li living organism. So we know it was already there in the trilobite, the first organism we have in the fossil record. All right, let's, uh, let's uh, look at something a little more complex. This is cell division. This is a chromosome. And uh, it's attached by microtubules coming from both sides. And this is, in a human cell, this is one uh, chromosome that has doubled so that it can divide and make two cells. Every, every one of our chromosomes, here you see a whole set of human chromosomes. This is called a karyotype. And uh, back in the old days, we used to have to cut these things out with scissors and paste them together. Now we just use Photoshop. But uh, you make a karyotype, that's a spread of all the chromosomes in one cell. And this is a human set, so it has 22 autosomes and then the X and Y chromosomes that make up a full set. Now, all these chromosomes, there are two of them. Notice there's two here. One you got from your mom and one you got from your dad. And they're now doubled. So each of them is ready to divide to make a whole new cell. So you ha in order to divide a cell in half, you have to double the DNA, and then you can separate it into two halves. Uh, here you can see one of those chromosomes where uh, detergent has been added, and the, the backbone of the chromosome has released the DNA. And this big cloud you see is DNA. And this little square is blown up over here, so you can actually see the DNA molecule there coming off that chromosome. <laughs> what a mess. There's enough DNA in the nucleus of every cell that if the nucleus was the size of the Earth, it would go to the sun and back eight times. There's two meters of DNA in every cell. And when the cell divides, it has to double. So there's four meters of DNA in the nucleus that is 10 microns across. That's like having 2,000 kilometers of of kite string in a shoebox. Imagine trying to sort it out. Um, that's that's a, a phenomenally challenging thing to do. Now we're going to see how that DNA gets replicated. This is one of the most amazing molecules in the cell. It's made up of many proteins. And what it's doing is it's copying the DNA and making two strands out of one. So here comes one strand in here. 
And one strand of the DNA is called the sense strand, and it is copied straight away, or the uh, plus strand is copied straight away over here, right there. So it just copies it straight away. The other strand is backwards, so the two strands are going in opposite directions. So the other strand, in order to be copied, has to be looped out and copied backwards. So that's what's happening over here. So you make two strands by two different methods, and they form two different chromosomes without a mistake. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of, when mistakes are made, there's guys waiting there to fix it. So this is how the DNA is copied. Now, look at how complex that is. And this is in real time, by the way, as near as they can get it. Here's how you organize that DNA. This is a complex of uh, eight proteins, four different kinds of proteins, two molecules of each. They're called histones. And the histones wrap the DNA around themselves one and a half turns. You'll see that happening in this video. Here you see the DNA strand, and then you'll see the proteins coming down and grabbing hold of the DNA and pulling it around into a loop so that they can bind it. Okay, now those, those form into another structure called a solenoid, which is six of those in a, in a row. And then those form into a condensed loop, and then that forms into another condensed loop, and then that forms into another condensed loop. And you finally end up with a chromosome. Now you're going to watch, you're going to watch the cell divide. I want you to think about this. Notice all the chromosomes come to the center of the cell, and then there's some signal given, and at the instant that signal is given, the two sides separate and go off in opposite directions. We're going to investigate that uh, just a little bit here. Now you have two cells, or you had one before. Uh, there you have the chromosomes, and again, they're going to separate at the centromere, and you'll see it happen. Here we're going to go back and, and condense the DNA again, just because I think it's worth watching more than once. These illustrations are all done by Drew Barry uh, and, and his crew for Harvard University, so these are extremely accurate. He's at Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Here you can see the histones in the middle and the DNA condensing around the histones. And uh, now you've got that uh, chromosome structure. This is all just one chromosome in the nucleus. And now we're going to zoom out of the nucleus. We're going to go out through the nuclear pore, out through the membrane, and now the nuclear pore. And now we're outside, and we're watching uh, that same cell divide. We're going to see it uh, divide again, so you can see that happen. Notice the chromosomes come to the center. They're drawn to the center by those microtubules. The microtubules attach at both sides of that middle part called the centromere, uh, called the kinetochore. And then the microtubules pull from both sides. And since they're pulling from both sides, they end up in the middle. And then when everybody's there, and how do they know when everybody's there? Uh, then they, they separate and go to opposite sides. How? In all the years of looking, we've never found a little man in there that's telling him what to do. There's no policemen. There's no, no nothing. Okay, now we're going to watch this happen again, and we're going to zoom in on one of these chromosomes right up here, and we're going to take a look at how that process uh, works. 
again, uh, gratis to, to Drew Berry. There's the microtubules attached to the kinetochore in the middle of the chromosome from both sides. Now we're going to zoom in and take a closer look at those, at those filaments and how they're attached. There's 200 different proteins involved just in attaching these to this. 200 proteins. Each of those has to be generated by a gene and has to be coded for by DNA. And now we're going to zoom in and take a close look at the mechanism itself. And this, again, this is, even though this is all animation, beautiful animation, it's real. It's what really happens as far as we can tell. Here you can see the microtubules extending. They're being manufactured here. And uh, what the cell's trying to gauge here is when are all the chromosomes on the center? When is this cell going to divide? When is everybody in line so that we can separate and go opposite ways? Watch what happens. They'll turn green in a minute. That's an indication that all the, all the chromosomes are there. Okay, now they're turning green. And now those green molecules will go gallivanting off on the microtubules to tell the other people they're ready. Watch. <laughs> Even though this is an animation, it's as real as we can make it. The microtubules are the highways of the cell. To get from place to place in the cell, you don't just float around. You walk on a highway. And the, the walking process is just as it's depicted there. Do you see why I can say that evolution is not a candidate? Okay, now we're going to take a look at the nucleus. There's one more thing I want to point out on the nucleus, and that's those nuclear pores. Here is the nucleus itself. These are the nuclear pores. Nuclear pores are exquisitely complex. They are responsible for deciding who gets in and out of the nucleus. All the molecules that are in the nucleus and all the ones that are outside control everything that happens in the cell. So, so these pores are very important. Let's take a look at one of those pores. Uh, here's a close-up just of the pore. And here is an expanded diagram that says it's a yeast nuclear pore, 456 proteins of 30 different types and make up the nuclear pore. Now, uh, you can watch this while I talk. Those nuclear pores, every time the cell divides, the nucleus dissolves, and all those nuclear pores disperse. And then when a new cell is formed and the nuclear membrane forms back again, all those nuclear pores have to reconstitute in the membrane, and there's no little man that's doing it. As far as we know, it's all designed into the proteins themselves. It's one thing to say, oh, this particular protein is important. It's another to say, this happens by itself. All that complexity that you just saw in cell division, and a and hundred times that much complexity that I know about, and probably a million times that complexity that I don't know about, all that stuff is already present when the trilobite first makes its acquaintance with the fossil record because it's all present in humans and fruit flies. So trilobites have all the complexity of the modern cell at the molecular level. Where did all that complexity come from? If you're an evolutionist, if you're an evolutionist, you're going to tell me that it all happened below this dotted line. 
And I'm going to say, well, do you have any evidence of that? What are you going to say? There aren't, there aren't any data. Do you believe me? They're looking. They're trying to find something down there, but there aren't any data, none, down below this line. So I'm going to say, so you're telling me you believe on the basis of faith, blind faith, that all that complexity could have come into existence without leaving any trace in the fossil record. And they're going to have to say yes. And I'm going to say, well, I believe that those things were created by an intelligent, omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful God who knew what he was doing. And my explanation trumps your explanation. Thank you. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.